You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. And along with co-host Joe Koss, they break down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz. In the House, Thursday, August 10th. Typically, August is a dreary month for politics. Everyone's on vacation. But boy, oh boy, do we have everything. We have North Korea. We have, obviously, immigration as always, healthcare as always, the courts as always. Um, the Alabama Senate race coming up just next Tuesday. So you're not going to want to miss our content, endless reams of stuff, And before we get started, this is why I just uh, want you guys to do me a favor. Two favors, actually. One, go to Judge Roy Moore's website. There's only a couple days left to the first round, but he's going to need the funding for the runoff because he will make it to the runoff. The question is who his opponent will be, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. And number two, on the show notes, when you click on the show to listen to this episode, which is episode 137, Make sure you look at the link in the show notes to fill out a demographic survey. I really need you guys to fill this out. This way we can get advertisers, and this is this is how we can do what we do. Um, if you like our comprehensive vision on issue after issue, what no one's talking about, um, every everything's about, oh, the media, the Democrats, the petty politics, but giving a true conservative vision, really an American vision that shouldn't even just be limited to conservatives, um, you know, on, on an array of domestic and foreign policy issues, we need to keep the lights on, and, and that's how we do it. But anyway, Trump's a ship lost at sea. It's so frustrating that it's like tantalizing. He, he grasps the truth to a certain extent. His instincts are often good. His tweets are good. And then, damn it, the ugh, just the decisions he makes and the decisions the people in his administration make and the personnel decisions he makes just completely undermine his campaign promises. And, uh, you know, here's the deal. Trump has been lamenting a lot about the media, the deep state, the Democrats, the filibuster, the 60-vote threshold in the Senate. What I want to go through today on a number of issues is to demonstrate how there's a lot Trump could do if he was would only be consistent with his own message and his own personnel, the stuff that is in his hands, there's a lot he can accomplish without the 60-vote threshold. There's a lot of things he could do unilaterally as president. The 60-vote threshold did not prevent you from supporting conservatives in Alabama, from firing McMaster, from ending the Iran deal, from getting rid of DACA, from signing bad budgets— and bad debt ceilings, because again, you, you do need Congress to pass what you want, but you don't have to pass what they want. You have veto authority. We're going to have a piece on that as well with the debt ceiling. He doesn't need to get rid of the filibuster to stop taking in refugees and, and to reject the Australian refugee deal, which evidently he's agreeing to. There's a lot of these things. He's, he, you know, just because you have people shooting at you doesn't mean you take a grenade and blow yourself up. Trump's not going to be judged by what's not in his power, but he will be judged by what is in his power to implement. 
And, you know, we we talked last time about the Alabama Senate race. R- right after we, uh, you know, posted that, that podcast, 136, Trump comes out and endorses Luther Strange, the epitome of McConnell's butt boy. Carl Rove evidently has more power in the White House than Steve Bannon does. So he Trump has spent the last 24 hours, just today, he's been uh, tweeting at Mitch McConnell for undermining his agenda. But he just endorsed McConnell's guy when he totally didn't have to get involved in that race. Th- this is the point. He says good things on foreign policy. Then he has McMaster and Tillerson undermine him. Then when conservatives call on him to get rid of McMaster, he, he blows them off. It's another article we had out this week. Trump's defense of McMaster is indefensible. What all these things have in common is he could actually do the right thing if he just tried. You don't have to worry about McConnell for this. Some things you need him. Not for a lot of this stuff. But you don't have to blow yourself up and support the enemy. You know, part of what concerns me with Alabama... I'm not really worried about the Luther Strange endorsement having an effect because Luther is just a unique candidate. He is so toxic in Alabama. Um, Roy Moore has a net 20 positive fave on fave. Um, Luther is underwater there, 50% unfavorable. Um, I think, you know, again, if we get behind Roy, if he has enough money to get his message out, he should be able to win the runoff, assuming Luther Strange is the number two guy. We'll, we'll see what happens Tuesday. But here's what I am concerned about Trump's endorsement. Trump's complete ignorance of who these candidates are, what they represent, or if he even cares. Again, I'm, I'm saying a lot of this tongue-in-cheek. I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt that he really believes in the agenda he says he espouses. I mean, I have my own views on that, but you know, let's play along. His endorsement of Luther Strange is kind of the electoral equivalent of, I hate Obamacare, but I love Canada's healthcare system. In other words, just completely mutually exclusive. Oh, it's terrible. McConnell, the Senate's undermining my agenda. Oh, by the way, we have a conservative running that's going to uphold my agenda, but I'm going to support McConnell's guy. Here's the problem. I know a lot of candidates, as I told you, or potential candidates that want to run on Trump's more or less his campaign message. And they want to run on the effect that Congressional Republican leadership is sabotaging it. They're, they're do-nothing. They don't stand for anything. They stand for nothing more than what the Democrats want at any given moment. And they want to challenge a lot of incumbents. Some of them are open seats. Many of them are incumbents. House, Senate, as you well know, it's no secret Chris McDaniel, our buddy from Mississippi, he's going to take another run at this and challenge Roger Wicker. What message does Trump's endorsement send to all these candidates? How many people are going to be dissuaded from running? Because here, here's the problem. Roy Moore is unique. He has a 100% name ID in Alabama. He's a unique figure. But most of these other guys are new, especially in the House candidates. Picture our buddy Jaron Jackson. Jaron Jackson, classic example, running in uh, Oklahoma 2nd District against Mark, Mark Wayne Mullen, the single-payer supporting um, pledge, term limit pledge breaker. So Mark Wayne Mullen is going to go directly to Trump and ask for his endorsement. How is, how is a guy like, like Jaron supposed to win? If Trump has signaled that he's now going to get involved in races that he totally didn't have to get involved in, where Luther Strange is not a legitimate incumbent, he was appointed by the LoveGov, 
So certainly guys that have been long-standing incumbents, everyone's going to know Trump's going to back the incumbent. Well, what does your campaign look like? The, the challenger comes and says, you're undermining Trump's agenda. I'm going to come in there and actually, you know, have Congress pass what Trump campaigned on. Well, what do you do when the incumbent then runs all these ads with Trump's endorsement? This is what is so frustrating about the guy. Like I said, with McMaster, too. We're going to get to North Korea in a minute. But, you know, again, Trump's rhetoric on North Korea has been terrific. And I'll explain why it's it's effective and signals the right direction change, but we need to add a couple more things to it. But by keeping McMaster and Tillerson, it, it just that's just ridiculous. They don't share his worldview. Now, Tillerson is a little bit more complicated because that's a you know cabinet position and um, w- would require a new confirmation fight. Not that I don't think it's worth it, but, you know, okay, I, I understand he's not going to get rid of Tillerson, but McMaster is just, I mean, it's unappointed. It's, 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 a, it's nothing really more than a presidential aide, but it's, it's very important because the NSC director could totally overrule the, the State Department. That is the foreign policy arm of the White House directly. Just get rid of him. You don't need Senate confirmation. Appoint a guy like John Bolton. Now, I know they're worried that John Bolton couldn't get Senate confirmation. Well, you don't need it for this. But so far, he's been defending McMaster. And again, this is why it's so important for conservatives to get on his case and say, Mr. President, I like your message. I like what you campaigned on. But your personnel and policies aren't following your rhetoric. Or we could just ignore it. He needs to hear hell over this endorsement in Alabama and over keeping McMaster. Anyway, I'm going to link to in show notes and make a note here. Um, the ZOA, Zionist Organization of America, a true conservative foreign policy shop, not just on Israel, but really other issues as well, unlike APAC, which is just a fraud. Um, ZOA is truly America first. Um foreign policy they have a whole dossier that uh um breitbart published from them on on mcmaster you know some some of the comments are from yours truly that they quote from but uh, they have a lot of other sources as well you know this is a problem before we get to north korea i just want to bring i want to enter another piece of evidence into our case our case why trump is a shift a ship adrift at sea where he kind of doesn't know what to do. He has some good instincts. He's just like, you know, this is the problem when you have no ideological rudder and when you don't understand issues, you just kind of flail out. You'll once in a while stumble upon the truth, but you won't follow through with it. And until and unless conservatives guide him and demand, hey, here's how you achieve that. In other words, I hate to be self-promotional here, but until Rush and Sean and these guys do what I'm doing, but they have a much bigger megaphone to do it, He's not going to change. Immigration. I know you're hearing a lot of news of, oh, there's a lot of deportations and stepping. Look, relative to the nadir of Obama, meaning not even the first term, but like the final few years when it was complete amnesty, of course, anything's going to be relatively better. But again, there's a lot of things continuing on our theme of things Trump could do for free. You could get for absolutely free. You don't need the Senate parliamentarian. You don't need to get 60 votes. You don't need to get by Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. You just end by mere passivity. Just stop Obama's garbage. 
that he did administratively. So I'm going to have a whole report out. We're, I was originally going to publish it today, but our team wants to hold it for a weekend content. Um, so I'll probably go out uh, you know, sometime over the weekend. How Trump's betrayal on Obama's amnesty is worse than you think. So Trump is continuing to issue a number of renewals. Now, I've gotten a lot of data from, from Custom and Border Patrol. Some stuff I'm hearing off the record. Some of the stuff is posted on their website. And there's a lot of very disturbing trends that I'm, that I'm starting to see. So number one, just so you know, the way Obama's amnesty worked is that it started in 2013, and they renew the work permits, Social Security cards they already got. Um, but it's it's up to a million of them by now. Uh, the work permits are renewed every two years. So 2013, 2015, 2017, which is this year, is a renewal year. Why is that so significant? Because uh, God forbid, should you know Trump ever do the right thing and just you know completely end DACA, which he should. But oh, you can't rip it out of their hands because evidently they're ent- entitled to violate our sovereignty and unconstitutional violation of statute. Um, he could he could get rid of 95% of it by a mere inaction. You don't have to take it away from them. You just, when they come for renewals, you just don't renew it. You just don't do anything. It's such a transformational thing you could do with a, with a mere inaction. A mere inaction. This, by the way, was what Marco Rubio, not that he probably meant it, but he publicly stated this, in January, when the the media asked him, "Well, what do you do with DACA?" He said, "Look, you know, I'm not gonna, you know, retroactively take it away from those that have it, but you know, we're just not gonna renew it." And yet, this man who ran on promised to quote immediately get rid of both of Obama's amnesties, to he talked about American dreamers, he's sitting and keeping it, and he's like talking about dreamers, dreamers all day. That's indefensible. All, while the courts are are forcing him to implement Obama's policy, but, the, but while the courts are blocking his executive action on immigration, so he's Trump is willingly upholding Obama's beyond his legacy, that is indefensible. And again, it's not just, oh, he hasn't gotten around to it. He's actively violating the Constitution. <laughs> you, you could be in harmony with our sovereignty, your campaign promises, security, putting American taxpayers first, and the Constitution by merely not doing anything. It's that simple. But it's worse than that. There's a number of these there, there's a number of backdoor amnesty programs that Obama implemented where so you know a lot of people, in other words, a lot of people know that we have 1.1 million immigrants. We we hand out 1.1 million green cards per year. And that's the whole family-based chain migration thing. We spoke about that last week, and the cotton bill will fix that. But then there's another stealing of American sovereignty, where basically the, the, the line between illegal and, and, and legal immigrants are very murky. Because, you know, typically you think of an illegal, someone who snakes into the country, or someone who overstays his visa. But... You know, there's a lot of things where there's loopholes and statutes like asylum. You know, you come here illegally, but then you say, I have a credible fear. You know, now, um, you know, it's it's total it's, it's total nonsense. And, and even statutorily, we don't have to deal with them. Um, we don't have to grant them that. But so what Obama and, and a little bit before Obama, but Obama certainly stepped on the gas pedal. He created his own programs that he didn't give them green cards. 
but he basically indefinitely allowed them to stay in the country and gave them work permits. So it's asylees, it's all these programs. For example, um, you know, people who come on H-1B visas, their spouses have what's called an H-4 visa. It's a spousal visa. But unlike the H-1B primary holder, the spouse cannot work. Um, Obama started a program where he just gave them work permits, the H-4 visa visa. There's a lot of examples. This TPS, temporary protected status, this parole. There's all these backdoor amnesty programs. And CPB, what I've, from what I've heard, there's some patriotic people that now work at, not this is not CPB, this is USCIS. Uh, there's patriotic people who work there, and they wanted to publish this data so people like me could harp on it and note that Trump is, can, is not getting rid of this stuff. He's still issuing all this stuff at the same levels of the peak of the Obama administration. So, you know, you look, and I'm going to show this in my chart, you'll see that even as late as 2012, 2013, the numbers were pretty low in these programs. Obama really started them in 2014. We can't even go back to the Obama's first term. See, you see what I'm saying? Immigration proper has been pretty stagnant since the 1990 immigration bill. That's been governed by statute, which is why we pretty much have had a, a close to a million, a little bit more, a little bit less every year of green cards issued per year. But all these other programs, these are hundreds of thousands of more people that are pretty much permanently allowed to stay in the country. And a lot of them we don't need or shouldn't want for very various reasons. And... Uh, Again, the, Obama made them up, and he's just keeping it. He's keeping it naturally. Um, you know, two two final points on this. Another thing he's keeping is a lot of people think, okay, DACA is really bad. Social Security cards they work, they get refundable tax credits. Which, by the way, Trump could cut off by demanding that the IRS go and check with the Social Security Administration and DHS, check their immigration status, and just not give them tax credits. You don't need Congress to do that. Uh, that it's lawless what they're doing now. Um, but, oh, whoops, Koskinen is the IRS director. Whoops, Mnuchin is the Treasury Secretary. And I've heard directly when this was brought up to them, they're against it, of course, because they're liberals. So there you go again, Trump you know, t- taking out the pin on, uh, on his own grenade and blowing himself up. You can't blame McConnell for that. Again, McConnell's certainly not going to help with that. He's bad on all this stuff. But you, know, you could do this stuff unilaterally. So anyway, a lot of people think they get Social Security cards, they get work permits. But, Daniel, at least they don't have a pathway to citizenship. It's not true. Every year since Obama started DACA, roughly 150 to 250,000 individuals go overseas. They go home. They come back, they're readmitted, treated like legal permanent residents. They're readmitted. We don't hold their status against them because they have DACA. We reissue them work permits. So there's a special status to the reissuance of work permits for those who got DACA but then go home and then come back and could rework. What's the significance? Those people could get green cards now because – I mean, this is so lawless, stolen sovereignty, the name of my book, literally, because the Obama administration treated it as if it cleanses their illegal status. See, right now, they can't just give them green cards. Well, maybe, I mean, 
you can't give them work permits to social security guards either. And he did that. So I guess you could do that, but he didn't do it through the front door. He says, all right, but if you go home and you come back, well, now you're coming back. Like now you're like a legal immigrant. Now you did it the proper way. You came back with authorization. Now you can apply for a green card. This year, we're on pace to meet the 250,000 for fiscal year 2017, 250,000 reissuances of work permits to those who went home and came back. The significance of that is twofold. Number one, it's a pathway to green card and citizenship. Number two, this blows a hole into the entire point of DACA. What are we told about DACA? Oh, the dreamers, they are kids that are brought of no fault of their own. There's nothing they can do, and, and we owe it to them. Screw the American citizen. They, they have a, a claim to our sovereignty first. Now, I've spoken a lot about the morality of this, why it's wrong on many, many fronts. But wait a minute. So we're told that they know of no country but America. Why is it that 200,000 a year are so easily able to go back home and suddenly discover a country of origin in order to come back and get citizenship. Kind of interesting. But again, Trump could just, this could all be stopped. Catch and release for asylum. The asylum, the work permits issued to asylum seekers are, are, are being continued. A lot of people forget we have fewer asylum than, than refugees. Again, asylum are the people that come here and assert it here. Refugees though, are the ones that assert it in their country of origin. We bring them in. Asylum, just so you know, asylum, we usually have about 40,000 issued. But that's just because we have the backlog in the courts and issuing them. Um, but there's roughly 200,000, 250,000 every year that come and assert asylum, and we don't kick them out. That's what you don't see. They get work permits. So this data I'm going to show you in my weekend piece, we know now that they've gotten work permits every year. See what I'm saying? So the immigration is really a lot more than the 1.1 million green cards. It could be close to 2 million when you add up all these categories. And these are very uh, often very problematic people because keep in mind, refugees, as much as we know, they don't really vet them, but officially they say they do because you're in control. You're deciding who to bring over. Asylum, they just come here and they say credible fear. You know, a lot of people think the oceans protect us. You know, um, look, you know, at least we don't have the European problem where they're just rushing into Europe and just overrunning it. You know, here we're committing suicide or we're bringing them in willfully through refugee. Um, but at least we don't have the European problem. It's not so true. They are coming here on their own. That's what asylum is. Um, there's a whole smuggling route through from Greece. They go to Central American countries, and they're, the coyotes are smuggling them in. So it's not just the uh, you know Latino countries. It's um, Middle Easterners coming in. Very problematic. Um, there, there was a case of Palestinians. Um, lots of stuff I've written about this over the years, recent years especially. This could all be end, and, and they promised in the executive order to end catch and release. Or you don't have to do that. You could detain them until they have their hearing. Instead, they're letting them go with work permits. We'll never see them again. They abscond. So I, I don't want to hear about, but the media, but the Democrats. Dude, that's so beta. It's kind of like complaining about, oh, the media should prosecute Hillary and, well, Last time I checked, the DOJ has that authority. You have you hold the keys, so do it. You know what I mean? Like, this is what's so annoying. 
there's a lot he could do. And, 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 and again, it's annoying from Trump's end, and it's annoying from the conservative media's end, the conservatives, because they're stupid. If five, ten more conservative figures would be doing what I'm doing, you'd bring it to his attention. Maybe he'd actually listen and be aware of it. And I could tell you for a fact there are patriotic people in the administration, policy guys that agree with us, and they're trying to get this message out. I seem to be one of the few that's heeding their call. Anyway, that's that. I want to move on to North Korea. Um, so obviously, look, you know, we all know, and the conservative media has been all over this, and I'm not making fun out of it. It's, it's true that it's very simple how we got here. Started with Clinton, continued with Bush and Obama the last, um, last more than two decades. We've just been paying them ransom. That when we ha- went before they had any power, we could have starved them to death choked them off, blockaded them. Now they have, um, obviously they have they have nuclear weapons. Now they supposedly might have miniaturized nuclear warheads that, that, that are now able to be placed on a ICBM and hit the entire Western part of our country, much less all of our assets in the Pacific. Um, and man, now we're stuck, but it's, we, we all know that this is all because of the talking heads, as Mark Levin said, the people that are on the cable shows giving advice and saying what Trump should or shouldn't do were the ones that got us here. So what, what do we do? I want to make a couple of points. Um, just a vision on foreign policy and, and what a conservative foreign policy means. So look, obviously, <clears throat> a lot of this is what I've been saying on healthcare reform. And I know I'm, I'm the master of the most far-flung analogies. Healthcare in North Korea, what does that have to do with anything? We've allowed insurance to own healthcare, right? And my whole point is they control us. They control healthcare. Government has allowed that to happen, has given them all these favors to hand them the keys of our healthcare. So basically, they could just blackmail us every second and say, well, if you don't give us the subsidies, we're going to raise premiums. And my point is it doesn't have to be that way. You could totally think outside the paradigm and screw them. And go to direct primary care health sharing associations and say, hey, now you get nothing, bozos. And um, now you have no leverage on us because we can evacuate everyone. That's what needs to happen with North Korea. The first thing is to stop paying the ransom. There's this thought that, you know, Kim Jong-un is like ISIS. That he's just, you know, mutually assured destruction. He's willing to go out in a blaze of fire. So you can't do anything but pay ransom because he'll attack us with nuclear weapons. The reality is, as crazy as he is, he's still very young and has and really does enjoy his life and his control. He doesn't want to die yet and go out in a blaze of fire. Uh, maybe one day he would, but he's not there yet, w- which is why it's so important we end this now. Again, it, it should have been 20 years ago. It's certainly not Trump's fault. Um, it, it's, it's started with Clinton and the other two administrations continued more or less in that path. We gave them like $5 billion initially and then like a a billion more. We give them a bunch of aid. And just like the PLO, where we say it's for humanitarian, it goes straight to the PLO. Same thing here. The food and fuel is going to the military. It's going to the regime. That needs to stop. So the posturing is important. You know, I make fun out of Trump's rhetoric a lot, how the policy outcomes don't match his rhetoric. So here I'm actually going to praise him. This is one case where the saber rattling the rhetoric matters. Rhetoric and taxes and healthcare reform doesn't matter if you don't follow through with it. But rhetoric with um, with North Korea does help because they need to. The, the reason why they're doing what they're doing is because is because they can. 
Because they know they can. They know they can get away with it. Because they know we'll pay the ransom every time. We need to reverse that that trend. And it starts with posturing. And, and Trump's posturing is good. Now, again, I'm going to go back to the point that McMaster and Tillerson are undermining it. Mattis, for once, was on message, put out a good statement, but Tillerson was undermining it. And no, this is not good cop, bad cop, three-dimensional chess that somehow was orchestrated. No, this is who Tillerson is. So anyway, um, I say, no, actually, do you guys want to lose a military conflict? Now, again, there's a lot of steps between zero and 100. You don't have to go to a military invasion right away, but you do have to be willing to do it, willing to do it at some point and evince that image that you're willing to. I don't think we ultimately would have to, but it starts with everything. It's all of the above. It's arming, getting much more aggressive with missile defense, putting them everywhere. Um, you know, they they tested a number of months ago very successfully in a missile-to-missile intercept. I forgot what it's called. I think we have them in Guam now. Um, that needs to be expanded much more. Trump needs to demand in the budget, say, look, this is not my issue, infrastructure, taxes, health care. This is an American issue. This we should all agree on. We need this. So we need the mi- missile, robust missile defense. And then just arming, arming South Korea, arming Japan. Not just as a buffer to, um, uh, uh, you know, showmanship against North Korea, but China. China is really the key to this. We have a lot of leverage over China we never use. And that's really the key. We've been obsequious to China for decades, and that needs to end. And Trump promised that. I mean, this probably ranks among the top three reasons people vote for Trump. Americans hate the Chinese. I don't mean the people, but I mean the, the commie government. And um, what they've done in the South China Sea is very problematic. The problem is I only hear Trump on trade. Trade, and I'm not going to get into that. We don't have time. That's not the issue. It's the national security. It's the cyber problem. It's, it's the military problems. That's where we need to challenge them. And part of that is we need to bolster Taiwan. 83% of North Korea's economy comes from China. That, that is the answer. You know, a lot of people are like, well, they're, they're starved to death anyway. Like, you know, you're never going to deter them. It's not true. The people are, but um, the administration is not. They have what they need for their military and for, 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 for their assets. But it's from the food and fuel they get. Fuel in particular from China. That, that, and we, we need to start massively building up forces there. The saber-rattling matters that we are headed towards regime change. We are going to use all of the statecraft we have to foster that. There's a lot of things we could actually do if we had the will, short of a massive, large-scale invasion. A lot of things you could do. But we don't do that because the policy is not because we can't do it. It's because the policy has been appeasement, paying the ransom. We need to make it very clear. And then we need to start – again, you don't have to uh, – um, immediately implement a blockade but you have to start heading heading towards that direction i guarantee you things would change now what about a military what about a military engagement i want to open up an angle to this that i believe nobody's been talking about you know we've had a lot of conversations together about foreign policy that 
it's not a generic false choice. Are you an interventionalist or are you a isolationist? Are you a hawk or a dove? It's like, well, what's the theater? What's the circumstances? What sort of intervention? What's the risk versus return matrix? What are our strategic interests? Are we threatened directly by them? Do we have to act? Do we, right? There's a lot of questions. The stupidity of what we've been doing in the Middle East is partly what has killed us. So again, a lot of it is Clinton's fault, it's Obama's fault, it's Bush's fault, just paying the ransom at a time when we didn't have to and we could have you know, just strangled the baby in the crib there in North Korea. Um, that, that's part of it. But there's also the problem that we've lost our political capital, our political and hardware, literally hardware deterrent on our military because we have bogged down our military, 6,000 lives lost, 1.6 trillion depleted our hardware, worn out our soldiers, refereeing the Islamic civil wars to no end with with Afghanistan, Syria. We're there. We're there. Despite the talk that you know we're not, we're there. Iraq, most prominently. Now Yemen and Somalia and all this stuff, all this involvement, all this political capital. Now, now. The problem is no one really has the appetite to confront North Korea. Imagine if we hadn't done Afghanistan and, and, and Iraq. Yes, you better believe we could totally take out North Korea and force regime change. I think we don't you know, I think the saber rattling and sta- sta- statecraft could force it. We don't need a full-scale invasion. Um, but full-scale invasion would have been a piece of cake. Really? You know, I, I was just thinking this time of year, this this past week was the, um, what do you call it, 72nd anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, you know, Japan, ironically, you know, look how the world has changed. You know, they're our ally now. But that's kind of what the North Korea government right now is kind of like the imperial Japanese government back then. Except there's one major difference. North Korea is a crap hole. They, they don't have anything. The qualitative and quantitative advantage we have militarily over them is, is insane. We never use it. But, you know, I, I was just thinking recently, you know, go, harking back to World War II, um, you know, we always think more of the Eastern Front in Germany. And, you know, I, I, we think of the epitome of sacrifice as Omaha Beach, the landing on Omaha Beach. And, you know, we lost about 2,400 men there. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize, I mean, it's just just the amazing character of a nation that we had, military, the nation, the people, what what we accomplished. You know, we view the Japanese front as like the 10% and the German front as the 90% and Omaha Beach is like the big deal. I mean, Japan was a big deal. I mean, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they had to drop the nuclear bomb because this was going on several months past VE Day, past the victory in Europe. Um, You know, even after we defeated them from all the islands, you know, they always talk about amphibious invasions being the toughest thing to do and how hard Normandy was to pull off. We did this dozens of times against Japan with every island topping. I mean, every island was brutal. And we didn't, the technology we had, like you look at the planes, the navigation, the heat sensing and night vision and the, the, the crazy stuff we have nowadays. They didn't have any of that. Qualitatively, you know, Japan had had the planes, the ships, the troops. 
qualitatively, it was kind of even. And these guys were, I mean, there's almost nothing like them. They're more, they're hardened fighters worse than the Germans. I mean, um, they, I mean, I mean, what our guys did to take those islands, they, they fought to the last man. And forget about, you know, the initial part of the war in Midway and Guadalcanal, Carl Reef, um, Carl, Carl C., I mean, uh, uh, battles. But I'm talking about even at the end where we're totally defeating them. And at, it, it, late in 1945, the, the two bloodiest battles took place after VE Day on the European front, Iwo Jima and, uh, and Okinawa. Again, we lost 2,400 people in um, in uh, at Omaha Beach. I believe I, I don't have it in front of me. I believe we lost thirteen thousand guys at at uh, Okinawa, the final island before Japan. Um, and that was, I mean, man, I mean, they had they had the whole the mountains that they were on in those islands, and we just stormed them straight up. And you know, yeah, we had an air force, but they had planes too shooting at us. They had the kamikazes. And uh, and again, the point is the the reason why we had thirteen thousand casualties is because they fought to the last man. Literally, we killed every last person um, on on these islands. That's the resolve America had. And then they still didn't give up. We dropped the bombs on them. I'm just thinking back. North Korea doesn't have any of that. We have all the technology we have. We could crush them. Again, we need to put a little bit more in missile defense, you know, to have that deterrent. If God forbid they they launch the nuclear stuff, but but again, you know, you're going to say, "Oh, Daniel, you were one of these neocon warmongers." Well, yeah, it sounds crazy now because we're so exhausted from tw- tw- from 16 years in the Middle East. But imagine if we'd be fresh and didn't have this. You know, Lindsey Graham is out there saying that he wants to. Um, he thinks we should have a, de- a declaration of war. As kind of a last resort, just to get not, not to directly declare war, but to give the president authority again, the saber rattling, which I think is very important. That is everything with Kim, Kim Jong-un to, to say, hey, no, uh, actually, uh, we're headed in a very different direction. Here's the problem. Lindsey Graham's own policies on everything else in foreign policy has made that a political impossibility. Because he wants to go to war everywhere. So it's like everyone, everyone laughs at him. This is what, and, and meanwhile, John McCain came out with his Afghanistan plan. Keep sending troops there indefinitely. What's his plan for victory? Who's our enemy? Who are we holding ground for? Nothing. No new ideas. He unveiled his new plan, and I'm not joking. There's literally nothing new in it. It's the dumbest. It's their fault. They have ensured that now we have nothing left for North Korea. What do I mean by nothing left? There's two threats in the world. There's jihad, there's Islam, and then there's the non-Islam. I'm just dividing it, and that's China, North Korea, to a certain extent Russia, um, long-term threats, and um, and Iran. Iran is the bridge to both because they're both the terrorism. They, they fund the terrorism, and but they're also kind of a conventional state actor as well with a conventional military, conventional state to defend, where there's a potential for conventional warfare. Don't get me wrong. The clash of civilizations with jihad, I still believe, is the consummate threat of our time. 
but it's not fundamentally a military threat. This is what people this is not what we need to expend our military for. Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, they're viperness, but they're not directly threatening us. There's nothing and there's nothing we can do about them. Well, if we don't fight them there, they'll come here. No. What do you mean they'll come here? They don't have missiles. That's what I'm now again. You, I'm not saying to disengage. I'm saying you stand outside. Um, we do need bombs and you know planes, and we need drones. You you have to you know uh, surgical strikes. But I'm talking about the heavy occupations and refereeing of the civil wars that have just depleted the our special ops are just stressed to hell. Um, uh, the units, the deployments over the last 16 years, the, the, just everything is so depleted. The money that we could have spent upgrading our military to, to the best force, that's what it means a conservative military, conservative foreign policy. You can serve for what you need. We pissed it away, creating a Sharia government in Afghanistan, giving Iraq, handing Iraq over to Iran, um, creating all these insurgencies, and now getting involved in Syria, and 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 nothing to show for it. I mean, yeah, so now it's like, yeah, I don't have an appetite to talk about military operation in North Korea, but that's what our military should be for. We don't need it. When I talk about the big expenses, the missile defense, the very expensive things, maintaining the large size Air Force, Navy, and and, and Army, Marines, um, that that you don't need for this. That's counterterrorism. That is a homeland security immigration Muslim brotherhood thing. We should stop self-immolating, right? They, they don't have missiles or an Air Force or a Navy to attack us. They attack us because we let them in our country through immigration. It's an immigration problem. You solve immigration, we solve the problem. You don't solve it. You could have your military there from now until 100 years. You let, I mean, it's so insane, it's so backwards. That, that's the problem with McMaster and, and McCain and Graham. They want to get involved in all the Islamic civil wars, but then bring Afghanistan to America. It's an immigration problem. It always was. 9-11, they didn't fly off on a Navy and an Air Force and attack us. It was through the visa system. They should have never been let in. It was the cells from the first nine... Uh, first World Trade Center bombing that we allowed to fester. It's a homeland security problem. You know what I mean? This is not a military. It's an FBI issue. It's a DHS issue. It's a common sense issue. It's a values issue. It's not. It's a. You know, what I mean, it doesn't cost us anything. <laughs> you could solve the problem without. And then again, you use soft power. The funding is a big thing. You go after Qatar and Turkey. The funding and Iran. The soft power. But what's happened is again they, they never. I, Syria, you have a five-way Islamic civil war, and there's nothing you can do about it. Now, they'll shake their fists at America, but they all do. I mean, there's nothing, you know, Iran is capable of hurting us, of reaching us, or is is headed that way. North Korea is, and and China is always a looming 100-year threat. They're going to start with going after our assets in the Pacific, like they start with the South China Sea, and they're going to go more and more. And why are they doing this? Because they know we're so bogged down in the Middle East. And again, we're not bogged down legitimately making success in fighting Islamic terror and jihad because terror is not the problem. It's a tactic. It's a clash of civilizations. It's an immigration issue. 
So they know that the American people have no appetite. We know the military doesn't have appetite. We know they don't have the wherewithal. They're stretched too thin. And that's why China and North Korea are able to do their stuff. So this is what's so indefensible about people like McMaster and McCain and Lindsey Graham of all times calling for more involvement in these theaters while we have North Korea. This is what we need our military for. You know, it's funny. A lot of people are like, Daniel, regime change in North Korea. Are you nuts? Oh, my gosh. Yet no one blinks an eye when we keep deploying more people to Iraq and Afghanistan to fight for terrorists and to fight for Hezbollah um, in in Iraq, but then fight against them in Syria, but fight for al-Nusra and arm the Syrian rebels. Like, somehow, and we're still doing that, even under Trump to a certain extent. You know, we have... have like 7,000 troops in, in, in Iraq. Who knows how many in Afghanistan left? Um, and, and again, a lot of these are our best troops. That's that's a big part of the problem. Special ops are, you know, you know, these numbers don't sound a lot for a conventional force, but special ops are completely drained. Completely, completely drained. So a big part of the solution to North Korea is building up our military for the Pacific Theater. For, for China and North Korea as a deterrent. Again, that's what peace through strength means. Usually you don't even have to wind up doing it. We have to, we don't want to be in a situation where they're like Japan in World War II, where they pretty much matched us and even in many ways at the beginning of the war surpassed us. Right, right now is the time. It's never going to get better. We need a lot of screws placed to China and we need the goal being regime change in North Korea. I know I'm going to surprise a lot of you how much I've been against it in the Middle East, but there's a huge difference. Keep in mind the Korean people, fundamentally, genetically, I mean, mentality-wise, they've obviously been transfixed. But it's kind of like the Japanese during the imperial uh, you know, rule. They're, they're no different, really, than the South Koreans. I mean, they're Koreans. Um, this is not a, some sort of religious belief that you're not going to break through. I mean, there's two there's two reasons why we can never succeed in regime change in the Middle East. A, we don't need it. We just need counterterrorism. You don't need. I mean, except for Iran, and and that's another problem. You know, imagine had we not done Libya, Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Instead, we did North Korea and I- Iran. We'd have a better world, much better world. Of course, now no one has an appetite for that because yeah, we wasted on this, but it's more achievable. Because the two elements why it doesn't work in the Middle East, aside from the fact that we don't need to invest in that, number one, Islam. I mean, that that's the problem. Um, North Korea is more similar to conventional things that we've done in the past with Germany, Japan. You know, you get rid of the regime and you get rid of, obviously, you know, China is going to try to screw with us. But the North Korean people, you know, you don't have Sharia. I mean, they're just programmed robots now. Um you know, the other thing is is um, tribalism. There, there. Korea is a the most homogenous place around, so you could you could govern that. You could install a new regime. That's the that's the whole problem here. Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria are not real countries. Certainly, Yemen and Somalia they never were. They were cobbled together after World War One, and they were held together by dictators. Um, you're, you're never going to put that genie back in the bottle. So, we expend all all our power we could we could destroy isis we could destroy nusra we could destroy but then 
it, it's a vicious thing because it's just a reflection of the tribal. It's a rubber band effect. You're never going to make that work. You're never, ever going to make that work. This is the point Trump needs to hear. Another reason why not to get further engaged is because of North Korea and China. That's why we need a conventional military. That's more of a conventional battle. And conventional warfare we do very well with. Look how well we did with World War II without a massive qualitative edge over Germany and Japan. Now, I know we had the resolve and values. We're a different country back then. That's part of the problem. You know, the other thing is we have to stop with this, oh, the people. We don't want to hurt civilians. The laws of just warfare, number one, is you worry about yourself first. North Korea is threatening us. They're threatening our assets. That, that's the, that, that, is a, that is a problem. It's a problem when Iran, China, and North Korea could threaten us and it goes unanswered. It's not a problem when Assad goes unanswered, right? That, that, that doesn't have anything to do with us. It's a very different theater. It really matters. But you know, part of the thing we say is, well, I'm scared. We can't starve out their people. They already are starved. You know what I mean? North Korea is one big con- concentration camp. So number one, you have to worry about America first. That is the law of just warfare. When they're attacking us, we have the right to have unconditional, unconditional victory. But number two, the best way to help the people is regime change. Sure, are a lot of people going to be killed um, in a war? Yes, but they're going to be killed anyway. And they're going to be killed longer. To, you know, the quicker you you end it, the better it is. That was the values we always understood in World War II that we've lost. We refuse to do that anymore. To actually fight a war, I'm just telling you, it wouldn't be that costly. I don't want to sound like a naive, like, oh, you're a warmonger. It's really, I mean, again, the problem is because we're so bogged down everywhere else, and we've spent trillions of dollars and six thousand lives, but um. Are you kidding me? You know, there you're dealing with guerrilla warfare and the the um, insurgencies and everything. Here's just straight up. It's a conventional regime change. We've never had such technology that we have now. Obviously, you need a strong cyber offensive against both North Korea and, and, um, and China. So my hope is that Trump's rhetoric, you know, leads to these policies. The attitude matters. We need a shift in direction. That is what peace through strength is. Again, peace through strength is not refereeing Islamic civil wars. When there's no strategic benefit to us, there's no outcome to the extent that there's somewhat of a, you know, parsimonious threat to us, there's no outcome that we could affect. That is an immigration problem. Of course, there's certain things we need to do militarily. You always have to have that as a deterrent there. But we really need it ultimately for China and North Korea. I want to have more on this in the future. We've gone way over time. Sign up for CRTV. Go to preparewithcr.com. Get your 140 meals from our buddies at Patriot Supply um, for just 99 bucks. Please, again, fill out that survey, that demographic survey we're going to have on the show notes so we could get more sponsors, more patriotic sponsors to give over the truth Talk beyond the hot air, false choices, the brand of conservative conscience that I know you guys love. I appreciate your support. God bless y'all. We'll see you again next week. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience. 